has caught the progression of Christianity, of becoming a Christian. First, we start out with all of self and none of thee. And then we move on to, well, maybe some of self and some of thee, and then less of self and more of thee. And hopefully we move to the spot where it's none of self and all of thee. That last chorus we sang was written by a young man that was a friend of Pam and I. He, uh, I don't know, it was late 20s, early 30s, when his wife passed away, leaving him with two really little kids. And we happened to work in the same building at the time, and uh, we were talking, and he told me when he wrote this chorus, he'd really been fighting with God saying, how can I trust you? How can I love you? How can I believe you when you took my wife from me at this young age? He said, I wrestled all night. And early in the hours of the morning, I got up and sat down and wrote this chorus and decided that's where it has to be. Everything I have, everything I am, everything I hope to be, all my passions, all my skills, everything I have to put in your hands. And said so he sat down and in about 10 minutes, wrote this, that little chorus, all that I am, all that I can be, it's all in your hands, Lord. Well, we're going to look this morning at that scripture of Luke uh, chapter 9. Uh, I've entitled it, Selling the Cross. Now, I don't mean we need to sell the cross, but Jesus was trying to sell the cross. Comedians and the rest of us, like to tell jokes about certain professions. There's all kinds of good jokes about lawyers, and doctors, and ministers, and I don't understand that because ministers never do anything to joke about. They're, they're, they're wonderful people. Uh, should Well, never mind. <clears throat> Used car salesmen. Those are all some of the favorites. And, of course, there's always the good jokes about the absent-minded professors. And uh, just to start the sermon, I had a couple jokes to tell. After closing his very first sale on a real estate uh, property, the young agent called his boss and said, boss, we got a problem. I just drove past that empty lot I sold, and it's totally underwater. The buyer's going to be really angry. Should I call him and offer to give his money back? And his boss said, heavens no. Get out there and sell him a houseboat. Uh, Okay, you got it, okay. It took you a minute, but you got it. Okay, uh, another one. Uh, store manager returned from break to find the young salesman with his hand all wrapped in a bandage. And, of course, he asked what happened. And the young man said, well, I just sold that ugly suit that's been on the rack for months. And the manager said, well, that's great. You mean that, that ugly suit that the home office sent us, the one with pink and green pinstripes? and pink and green plaid pants to go with it? He said, yeah, that's the one. He said, man, I can't believe you sold. That's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. How were you able to do it? But more important, what happened to your hand? He said, well, after I sold it, the man's seeing-eye dog bit me. <laughs> okay, enough salesman's joke. I'm sure all of you can come up with a horror story about some salesman you've had knock at your door or that you've met in a store, uh, or perhaps you get some irritating scam phone calls. Anybody here get those? <laughs> One day this last week, I got 72 of them. Uh, 
drives me crazy. And sometimes if I'm just sitting in the car waiting for my next passenger, I, I kind of like to oh, play around with the callers. A couple months ago, one of them called me and said, we understand from our records that you served in Camp Lejeune during whatever the years were. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I was at Camp Lejeune during those years. He said, well, did you drink the water at Camp Lejeune? And I said, well, I'm sure I drank the water when I was at Camp in June. Uh, we didn't have bottled water and, and there weren't pop machines everywhere like there are today, so I'm sure I must have because it's always hot at Camp in June. He said, well, have you had any physical problems? I said, well, I've had four surgeries. And, and yeah, you know, well, you know, you may be eligible for between $1,000 and $100,000. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. I said, oh, that's great. I could really use that money. He said, well, would you like us to represent you? And, and we'll have to fill out some forms. I said, well, certainly, but let me ask you a question. If I could get up to $100,000 for being at camp in June, how much can I get for being at camp in July and camp in August? And I don't know, the phone went dead, so I guess I'm not going to get any money. Another one called and said, uh, you just won the Louisiana lottery for a million dollars. I said, oh, Wow. I said, how did I do that? I didn't even buy a ticket. He said, oh, in the Louisiana lottery, you don't buy tickets. They just draw names out of their tax rolls. I said, I've never paid taxes in Louisiana. He said, well, they use surrounding states too. I said, wow, a million dollars. He said, no, we can handle this one of two ways. He said, we can have the state's treasury office issue you a check, but it'll take you know two or three weeks, or you can give me your account and the routing number and we can deposit it within 24 hours. I said, oh, a million, oh, well, let's get that in my account. He said, well, what's your routing number? Well, I had no idea what it is. I said, which number is that? He said, it's the one with, I think it was 12 digits. So I rattled off 12 numbers, and he said, now your account number. And I rattled off six or seven numbers, and he said, well, that's great. That will be in your account within 24 hours. I said, fantastic. He said, oh, by the way, some banks require uh, a password even to deposit money. Do you have a password on your account? I said, oh, yes. He said, what is it? So my mother's maiden name. He said, well, what is that? I said, well, it's a, it's a Norwegian name, so it's not pronounced anything like it's spelled. And Let me spell it for you. And he said, okay. I said, it's S-T-K-J-O-P-U-U-D. He said, oh, that is a rough one. I said, yeah, it is. He said, how do you pronounce it? I said, stupid, and that's what you think I am. And he hung up. I didn't get the million dollars either. It's just really frustrating. I mean, I don't know what I say wrong. I, I don't understand it. But at any rate, you've all run into salesmen like that. And we're going to look at Jesus as a salesman this morning and uh, see how he did. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And remember those words, because we're going to get back to them in a minute. But first, I want us to look at a couple of situations in which we can see Jesus as a salesman. In the first situation, Jesus and his disciples are headed for Jerusalem for the Passover, and they plan to pass through a Samaritan village. So a few of the disciples were sent ahead to make plans for them. They needed a place to stay, and they needed food to eat. But when the Samaritans learned that Jesus and his disciples were headed for Jerusalem, they rejected them. 
Samaritans believe that the sacrifices should be made on Mount Gerasim in Samaria and not in Jerusalem. So they refused hospitality to Jesus and his followers. Two of the disciples, James and John, had a real good sales approach. They said, hey, I know, let's call down fire from heaven and destroy them. That'll make them want to buy what we're selling. And Jesus rebuked them and went on because he was resolutely going to Jerusalem. In the sales, second sales situation, an unnamed man approaches Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever. If you were a salesperson, wouldn't you love to have someone come say, I will buy anything you're selling. I don't care what it is. I don't care. I, I, anything you've got to sell, I'll buy. But Jesus has a different, uh, rather strange sales technique. He said, hold your horses, my friend. Uh, my translation, it's not from the King James. Hold your horses, my friend. You sure you want to follow me? You understand that I don't have a house. I don't even have food I can count on. Uh, in other words, he's saying following me is hard. It's not an easy life. Are you sure you want to follow me? I mean, that sale approach is, well, I don't know, like if one of you ladies go to Macy's to buy a dress and you try it on and you say, well, I like this, I'll buy it. And the salesperson says, that's pretty costly. You sure you want it? You think, huh, that's strange. He said, yeah, yeah, I want, I really like it. I know it's costly, but I'm going to buy it. And then she said, well, you know, it's not really well made. I don't know how long it'll last. The material's kind of cheap. He said, well, I really like it. I'll take good care of it. I'll buy it. So she finally throws in her final sales pitch, and she says, well, you know it makes you look fat. <laughs> right away you decide you don't want it, right? <laughs> That's kind of what Jesus did. He said, you don't want to follow me for these reasons. Not the greatest sales pitch. Now, we don't know if the man followed him or not. We're not told. The second, Jesus approaches a man and says, follow me. And the man answers, well, first let me go and bury my father. I used to wonder why Jesus didn't say, oh, well, sure, go ahead and do that until I read some commentaries and realized the man's father wasn't dead someplace waiting to be buried. The man was saying, I will follow you after my father passes away. And the commentaries think that it's either because his father had great wealth and he didn't want to lose the inheritance, or his father was a Pharisee and he knew that he'd disowned, from, be disowned by the family if he followed Jesus. So he said, listen, wait, uh, I believe what you're trying to sell me, but wait till my father has gone, then I'll follow you. And Jesus really didn't give an answer to him. He just let that sales go by. Then he said to another man, follow me. And the man says, well, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It wasn't really that, you know, bye, I'll see you later. It was, I'll follow you sometime in the future, not now. To the first man, Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God and 
to the other one, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Whether any of these men followed Jesus or not, we really don't know. Now, any good television evangelist could have taught Jesus how to do it. He should have said to them, listen, you follow me and your life will be so easy. It'll be filled with riches. You'll have constant good health. You'll have a mansion to live in, and if you want to, you can drive a Lexus. And you'll never be late for another appointment because your Rolex watch is perfect time. I mean, that's what a good salesman would do, isn't it? Instead, he said, now let the dead bury the dead. And, and, you know, if you're going to follow me, then don't put your hand to the plow and then look back. I'm not a farmer. Uh, James probably could give you more details than I can, but I pastored a church once in a farming community, and one of the men uh, was out while doing something on the tractor in the field. I don't know what he was doing. But anyway, he fell asleep, and his tractor went right across several rows of corn and wiped out the crop. And everyone was kidding him about it, and he said, well, Jesus said, you shouldn't put your hand to the plow and look back, and I didn't look back. I just fell asleep. Well, same difference that ruined the crop. And I wonder if sometimes as Christians we don't look back, we just fall asleep. Well, I think perhaps Jesus was not a good salesman at this point. Or maybe there was something else going on. Remember I told you to remember the words at the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set up for Jerusalem. He knows what's in store for him. He knows he's facing arrest, torture, a lonely, painful, humiliating death. And yet he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. He didn't protest. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't try to protect himself. Pastor Bender would be proud of me, wouldn't he? I just used an alliteration and I didn't even know it. (laughs) Protest, procrastinate, protect himself. He didn't do those things. He headed straight toward the cross, knowing that he was fulfilling God's purpose by giving his life in our behalf. When Steve Jobs, the founder of uh, Apple Incorporated, was 17 years old, so he says in an interview, he read a quote that says, changed his life forever. The quote was this, if you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll be right. He said, that made me think. He said, and from that day on, every morning when I got up, I looked in the mirror and I said, Steve, if today's your last day, do you really want to be doing what you're planning to do? He said, and quite often I'd say, no, I should do this instead. Later, after learning he had an incurable cancer, he he said this in an interview, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment, any fear of failure, those things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Now, I don't know anything about Steve Jobs other than he invented some stuff and made a lot of money. I don't know if he was a Christian. Uh, 
but both of those statements I thought are, are very important statements. And the thing is, we all know we're going to die. We just don't know when. And so we should be able to avoid the trap of thinking we have something to lose because we don't. The only thing that matters is eternal life. The Greek word that Jesus used when he said, follow me, is made up of two Greek words, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. But they mean, join your path to my path. And that's what he expects from his followers, to join our path to his path. There's no fine print in Jesus' offer. He wanted these men to know up front the challenges of joining his path. He didn't make it sound easy. He was honest with them, which most used car salesmen are not. He was honest with them. He wants them to know there is a cost and to count the cost before joining his path. Now, how do you know if you're a follower of Jesus? Is it because you attend church? Well, followers of Jesus ought to attend church. But does that make you a Christian? I think it was Billy Sunday, I'm not sure, but I think it was he who said, going into church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a barn makes you a cop. It just doesn't happen that way. Or is it because you read the Bible? Well, Christians ought to read their Bible. Or perhaps because you pray before you eat. Or more likely because you don't curse or drink or smoke or buy lottery tickets and never go to a casino. Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Those are all things we probably shouldn't do or should do, but that's not what makes you a Christian. To follow his path requires a level of commitment and courage and sacrifice that goes beyond just trying to be a better person. It's a pathway to life and joy and meaning when we join our path to his path. First, we have to see that Jesus walked the path of commitment. He was passionately committed to obeying God in every moment of his life. He kept his heart, his mind, and his will constantly aligned with that of God the Father. And with this alignment of his whole self with God, he, he was allowed to live purposefully without fear or anxiety or distraction. He could have called down fire from heaven on the Samaritans, but for what point? What good would it have done? They may have all died, but they would have all died lost. And that was never his goal. Second, we see that Jesus calls us to walk the path of courage. You know, when you love someone you deeply, you're willing to confront your fear and face down the challenges unflinchingly for their sake. Read just recently of a woman uh, in one of the areas that was having vast flooding whose two boys were swept away in a flash flood and she jumped in to save them and she was able to get the youngest boy and, and take him over to where he could grab onto a, a tree trunk. She went back and got the older boy and got him over there and put him on the tree trunk and then she was swept away and drowned. She didn't know how to swim. Those around there couldn't imagine how she got the boys over to that tree. But when you love deeply, you do things that you never imagined you could do in order to save that person. And that was the source of Jesus' courage. Jesus knew that he was deeply loved by the Father. That was the source of his strength. 
Jesus loved God and us deeply. That was the source of his courage. There was no pain he would not bear to show his love for us. And he calls his followers to show that same level of courage in loving others for his sake. In uh, seminary, we're told in sermons never to use personal illustrations and to never talk about your kids because it would embarrass them. And other people had kids just as cute as yours, so they didn't want to hear about yours. So I'm not going to talk about our kids this morning, at least not at this point. I'm going to talk about our dogs. <laughs> they were our kids for many years. But Heidi and Hannah, we got them when they were six weeks old. Two sisters, pure white schnauzers, and very quick to learn, very smart. Uh, we hadn't had them more than a couple of weeks when they knew that they were supposed to ask to go outside. They learned to shake hands and to sit and to come. The most important command to give, teach a dog is to come. And I taught them that when we opened the door for them to go outside, they weren't to step over the threshold until we said, you can go outside. I didn't want to open the front door sometime and have them take off. And they never did. They You'd open the door and they'd stand there and look up at you, sometimes prancing as they looked up at you, and say, okay, you can go. Well, Pam and I were traveling to uh, Chicago for something. I, I can't remember what, but I know it was something that we couldn't be late for. I, I think it was my mother's funeral, but I, I can't really remember. But we stopped at, at a motel and the lady behind the desk said, welcome to Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I said, thank you. We're glad to be here. And uh, we stayed there overnight. In the morning, I was taking the luggage out, and I opened the door, never thinking the dogs would take off because they never did. We'd had them for several years by that time, and they never went out the door. But that morning, the second one was open. <laughs> I thought, oh, great. Here we are. Miles from home, we've got to get on. I can't spend days looking for them. But I went out calling their names, felt kind of stupid walking up and down the street at 5 o'clock in the morning. Heidi, Hannah, Heidi, Hannah. I thought I'm probably waking everybody up who spent a lot of money to sleep in these rooms, but I want to find my dogs. And I kept looking and calling, and, and I was really pretty desperate. And what do we do when we're desperate? Well, I thought to pray about it. It took me a while because I thought they'll come when I call their names, but I finally prayed about it. I said, God, I don't want to leave them here. They've never been outside of our backyard except to go to the car. This is a busy street. It was the main street through town. Uh, they'll get hit. and Just help me to find them. And just then a man appeared. I don't know where he came from, but he said, are you looking for two white dogs? I said, yeah. He said, they're over there behind the Kentucky Fried Chicken eating the trash that didn't make it into the dumpster. So I went over and said, Heidi, Hannah, come. Back to eating the chicken. Heidi, Hannah, come. This time they didn't even look. They knew it was me and they didn't care. I figured they ran out the door that morning because they'd been smelling that Kentucky Fried Chicken all night. We couldn't smell it, but I figured they did, and they couldn't wait to get to it. I couldn't get them to come, so I thought, well, I'll walk over and pick them up. And when I got close to them, they ran around the back of the dumpster. So I went this way, and they went this way. I went, you know, 
were kind of playing tag and I couldn't get them to come. Finally, I sat down on the curb and I wasn't real crazy about sitting down on the dirty curb with my suit that I was wearing to whatever we were going to. And I patted my knee and said, Heidi, come. Come here, girl. Come on, Heidi. Come on. She was the most uh, compliant of the two. And eventually she came over and I picked her up and held her and told her how good she was. And she licked my face with her greasy Kentucky Fried Chicken tongue and, and with the whiskers that were, at any rate, Heidi or Hannah looked and saw that Heidi was getting attention and she thought getting attention was more important than the chicken. So she came to and I picked them up, put them in the car and gave them each a begging strip and we left. I gave them the begging strip so they would know that I still loved them. They weren't in trouble. They weren't being punished. Now, I tell you that story. I don't know why I just wanted to tell it. No, I tell you that story because I think the church, through the last few decades, has allowed a whole lot of people to smell the world and they've taken off. And I, I know we say, well, it's their choice. And it was certainly Heidi and Hannah's choice to go after that chicken. And the allegory kind of breaks down here, but I think perhaps they've left the church for several reasons. One, I think, is... Well, let me back up a little bit. I just read this past week that thousands of American teenagers are joining the Islam faith every year. I can't imagine why. Why would you join a faith that teaches you to hate people, that makes it all right to kill anyone who strays from your beliefs, subjugates women. A couple of weeks ago, I picked up a woman who was obviously Muslim by her, her dress and drove her out to a Target on Northwest Highway. And, and she said, go around to the back of the building. So I went around to the back of the building. I said, well, there's no doors back here that you can go in. She said, oh, I'm not going to Target. I said, well, where are you going? I'll take you there. She said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to a house about four blocks down there. I said, well, I'll drive you there. She said, no, no, no. I can't let them see me get out of a car driven by a man who's not a relative. I will be shunned by the whole family. Now, what's enticing about that? We heard an interview from a young lady, this, I think it was this last week, who had joined the Muslims. And when asked why, she said, because they made me feel belong. I belonged. Well, in listening to her, they had told her a whole bunch of lies, but they made her feel belonging. And I, I think the church has lost a lot of people because they just didn't feel they belonged. When I was in you know, probably seventh, maybe eighth grade, we had a large youth group. There were about 60 or 70 of us teenagers in the church. And one Sunday night, only about 25 of us showed up. And we learned it's because the others stayed home to watch Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I remember Sunday school class and other youth groups and other things that went on. 
those kids who stayed home were really lectured harshly. Now, they shouldn't have stayed home to watch Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show, but they did. So it didn't do any good to lecture them. They'd already done it. And I know a couple of the girls who were madly in love with Elvis just stopped coming to church because they felt that they had been condemned as sinners going to hell because they liked Elvis Presley. And I think the church has done a lot of that. Not meaning to, but I think often our legalism has driven young people away. I was hired one summer to be youth, uh, what was my title? Assistant program director at our camp. It was summer between my junior and senior year. We'd been out there a couple of weeks when the camp director called me into her office and said, John, I hired you because I thought you'd be a great example to the kids. And, and I, I thought you were living a good Christian life and you'd really be able to help. But I, I'm going to have to let you go unless you change the clothes you wear. I said, what? What? You know, I'm wearing jeans and, and a button-down shirt. I'm not even wearing a T-shirt. What? She said, well, you're wearing bell-bottoms. What kind of a sample example is that set for the young people at this camp? Well, I called my parents and told them to bring out the rest of my pants that weren't bell-bottoms. But after years later, I thought I should have said to her, you do that? Think of something you should have said and you didn't. I should have asked, what does the width of the bottom of my pants have to do with my spirituality? But I think often we picked at things and tried to regulate holiness instead of teaching and preaching holiness. Now, I don't know if that's true in the Nazarene church. Well, actually, I do know it's true because my sister-in-law grew up in the Nazarene church. And my brother was a Nazarene minister for a while. So I know what happened there too. It wasn't just the Salvation Army and it wasn't just the Pilgrim Holiness and it wasn't just the uh, Wesleyan Methodist or the Free Will Methodist. It was pretty much the whole holiness movement. We, we forgot to love and we legislated. Another reason a lot of young people left the church, I think it's because just the opposite, liberalism. A lot of churches decided we won't lose our young people like the other churches are. We'll stop using those words that are so offensive, those words that drive people out of church. We won't use those words like sin and sinner and repentance. They have no place in our congregation. And when you get too liberal, people leave because why do you want to make a commitment to something that has nothing to commit to? And they leave because of legalism, because why do you want to be of something that's that harsh? Which is why I don't understand why they keep joining the, Islam, the Muslim faith. Other churches, I think, develop the little bull peep syndrome. You know, little bull peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. But leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. So let them go. We'll just let them go. We won't hunt for them. We won't try to rescue them. We won't try to find them. We'll just let them go because they'll come home. And we've found that they don't. I don't know if I said this earlier or not. And hopefully none of you will remember. I don't know. But I, I've read that 
last year, 2022, an average of two churches closed their doors for the last time every day. Isn't that frightening? And I understand that the year before that, or a couple of years before that, during COVID, it was even higher. I, this uh, few weeks ago, I drove past a, a big church on the south side, and I'd been inside because Pam used to be a CEO of one of the United Way agencies, and they rented space there. And one day, when there was no one there but the two of us, I kind of toured the whole building outside of the part that they were renting because I wanted to see it. They had a foyer at least as big as this room, maybe bigger. Uh, the sanctuary probably seated 800. A fellowship hall that was underneath the foyer and the sanctuary, so it probably seated 1,000. A gymnasium that rivaled any high school gymnasium. Enough classrooms to house a small elementary school. And I drove past it a couple of weeks ago and all the doors and windows have plywood over them with a for sale sign. Now, I know a lot of the really small churches closed during COVID because they just didn't have any income. But that must have been a huge congregation at one time to build a building that size. I mean, it couldn't have been 20 people to build a building that covered nearly a square block or half a square block. And when I was touring it, I said to myself, wow, would I love to have this gymnasium in this neighborhood where there are hundreds of kids and where I see boys out on almost every street with a portable basketball hoop playing basketball, what you could do with this gym. But it's closed. Went past the church, uh, this past week up on Northwestern. I can't think of any emotion I felt except the one that's in scripture. It grieved my spirit to see that that church had been turned into a tavern and the basement into a medicinal dispensary. How sad. How have we gone wrong? What have we not done that we should have done? that we didn't lose two generations. Oh, I know things are bad today. I know the world's got all kinds of temptations that none of us faced. But I think maybe we use that as an excuse. It, it's been my experience when I lose something that it's my fault. Now, I sometimes try to blame Pam, but, but generally it's, it's my fault. Uh, I, I can't blame the thing that's lost. You know, I don't know where my car keys are. It's not my car keys' fault. If I can't find my glasses, and I buy them at Dollar Tree, so they're a dollar a piece, and if I lose them, it's not that big of a deal, except sometimes I can't find them and I can't read. <laughs> But it's not the glasses' fault. It's my fault. And I think the church, not specifically this church, but the church, universal, needs to accept the fact that all those generations that are lost, yeah, they had free will and they chose to go, but maybe, 
Maybe we weren't committed enough to keeping them. Maybe we didn't have the courage to stand up for the things we needed to stand up for. Why was the church universal so quick to back down when they took prayer out of schools? All schools were first started by churches. I don't know. I don't know what we could have done, but it just seems we were awfully quick to just accept it. When they said can't have youth for Christ clubs in church schools anymore, I said, "Well, okay, we can't do it." I'm not sure what we could have done or should have done. I was too young at the time and, and too old now. So, but I think a lot of the losses can be contributed to our lack of doing what Jesus would have done. Evangelist Bob Pierce in 1947 held evangelistic meetings in China. He was invited one afternoon to come to an uh, orphanage slash school uh, the missionary there named Tina, and her last name is impossible to pronounce, but uh, she was from Eastern Europe, and I, I can't pronounce those names, but she had this school where she taught any of the kids in the neighborhood who wanted to come, and then she had several orphans that she took care of. So Bob Pierce went and preached there, and Several of the children accepted Jesus, and he told them all they should go home and tell their parents that they had accepted Jesus and invite their parents to come that night to the revival meeting. Well, that night when the meeting started, one little girl walked in. She had a black eye. Her lip was bleeding. She had bruises all over her body, and Tina, the missionary, went to her and picked her up and said, what happened? So I went home and told my parents that I had become a Christian and my dad beat me and told me to get out of the house and if I ever came back, he'd kill me. I didn't know where to go except back here. So Tina held the little girl, took her in, cleaned her up, wiped the blood and so on. Following the service, she introduced this little girl to Bob Pierce and explained the situation and he said, well, what are you going to do? And she said, the question isn't, what am I going to do? The question is, what are you going to do? And he said, well, can't you take her into the orphanage? And she said, by our contract with the government, I can only take a child into the orphanage who has a foreign sponsor to pay for them. So he said, well, I'll pay for her. So he sent money each month to pay for this little girl. But when he got home, he got to thinking, there must be other people like the other kids in this situation. And out of that came an organization I'm sure you've all heard of, World Vision. You've all heard of World Vision. The question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, if we're going to join our path with Jesus... Then Jesus calls us to walk the path of sacrifice. Now, I know in our Christian mindset, whenever we think of sacrifice, we think of 
a lamb in the temple being having its throat slit or, or Jesus hanging on the cross. But the definition of, the, the Greek definition of sacrifice is, is not quite that. It is an act of giving up something valued for this something, for something of more value. I think that's maybe a little different than we thought of it. It's giving up something of value in order to gain something of more value. Jesus considered our life more valuable than his life. So he gave up his life that we might live, an offering to God in our place. Now, often in a lot of churches, uh, not so much in the holiness movement, people are asked to give something up for Lent. Last year, I gave up asparagus, broccoli, and <laughs> spinach. It, it was a terrible, terrible sacrifice because I love those three things almost as much as I love slamming my hand in the car door. <laughs> Just giving up something is not a sacrifice, is it? No, I never gave up chocolate. <laughs> as you can tell by looking at me. But there are some things for which I probably would even give up chocolate. I can't think of anything, but there's probably something. Sacrifice is giving up something that you really value for something that you value more. That's why that mother jumped in that raging river and got her two boys up to the tree trunk and then died because she valued her boys' lives more than her life. And I think we need to realize that we have to make that commitment not to just Jesus Christ, but to the church. Now, I know some would disagree with that, and that's all right because you're entitled to your own wrong opinion. But I don't know how you can love the head of the church and not love the body of the church. I don't know how you can make a commitment to Jesus Christ and not make a commitment to the church because the church is his body. And commitment seems to be so hard in our society. Commitment to anything. Uh, used to be when you graduated from high school, you got a job and you stayed at that job till you retired. The average person today has 16 jobs between retirement, I mean between graduation and retirement. When I read that, I thought, oh my goodness. And I thought, I've had quite a few. <laughs> we find it hard to make commitment. Used to be that if you bought a Ford, it's because you were committed to Ford and you never bought another car except a Ford. That's not true anymore. Now you look for the cheapest, well, the best deal, not the cheapest. You look for the best deal. Where can I get the best car for the least money? used to be you buy a house and you live in it till you die. And maybe you leave it to your children who live there till they die. Now, it's not uncommon for some, some people to move every three or four years, always to a bigger and better house. Commitment is hard. And, and we find often as Christians that commitment 
is hard. And we have to have courage. Courage to do that which is right even when it's hard. And we can only have that courage when we love so much that the love gives us the courage. And we can only have the strength we need when we know that we are loved so much. And then we have to make the sacrifice to give up that which is valued for that which is of more value. Jesus was resolutely set to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to keep him from going, knowing what he was going to face there. And I think we have to have that same determination in our Christian lives. Nothing is going to deter us. Jesus wasn't a real good salesman at selling the cross because he told the truth. He made it appear to be as difficult as it was. But millions of people have followed him because they realized following him is of greater value than the Kentucky Fried Chicken by the dumpster. You know, millions are not attracted to the sense of the world, but attracted to him. Would you stand together if you're able?